coming out of verse 8 into verse 9, and uh, obviously we don't have time to re-preach the uh, entire sermon and the covenant reality uh, that is set before Paul in what happens in verse 8, the fact that uh, God, who has determined from before the world began to save, had determined uh, how he would carry out that salvation in history, uh, and that he, being a God who is covenantal in himself, and perfectly so, uh, has uh, ordained uh, to carry out his plan of redemption, uh, especially by various administrations of the covenant of grace, uh, in which uh, people and households and uh, churches uh, do not participate with perfect faithfulness, and so do incur upon themselves uh, covenant curses. And yet, uh, by the parallel of those two things, uh, displaying that what he is doing in history, saving sinners, is what he has been determined to do in himself. And as we see, both covenant faithfulness receiving covenant blessing and covenant unfaithfulness receiving covenant curse, even down to the Lord Jesus threatening to remove lampstands and then removing them, uh, knowing that this is the actual work in time of a God who in eternity has determined within himself to save. And that salvation shall be carried out. And the great encouragement that Paul already has then at the end of verse 8, as he has seen what God had prophesied uh, in, uh, in the telling of this Uh, covenantal administration plan of redemption, even how it would be to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And he had told Abram, uh, who was being called out from among uh, idolatrous uh, nations, uh, what uh, would come to be called um, Gentiles, it's just the word for nations, uh, to himself become a nation through whom all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Uh, one from whose seed uh, and in whose seed uh, God would save a multitude from all of the nations. Uh, And so this Jew first and then the Greek and by the Greeks, uh, by the saving, this gospel explosion to the nations, uh, even the completion of saving every remaining elect Israelite, uh, Paul was Uh, encouraged and he saw it happening uh, when he was rejected in the synagogue and he goes next door to a Gentile's house uh, and he sees in microcosm the whole scope of covenant theology Uh, because as he begins to minister out of Eustace's house or justice as uh, we we say in America um, uh, as he begins to minister Crispus the ruler of the synagogue Uh, comes to faith, Uh, and the apostle who magnifies his ministry to the Greeks because he knows in the covenantal way that God works that he provokes even Israelites for whom Paul wishes that he could be accursed, go to hell for their sake. Uh, And yet he's not given to be accursed for their sake. He's given to be apostle to the Gentiles, and yet God even saves some of them through that. And he magnifies his ministry among the Gentiles even because of the secondary effect under the covenantal plan of God. Uh, And not only Crispus, but his household. God is one who still saves by households. Uh, And then uh, not just Crispus and his household, but many in Corinth. Uh, And baptism after baptism, three of which Paul administered. Uh, Crispus and Gaius and uh, the household of Stephanus. Uh, But many of which... uh, probably Timothy and Silas uh, and minister, and yet Paul is preaching baptism um, and preaching especially uh, the institution, the words by which our Lord instituted it. And one of the words by which our Lord, the last part uh, of the institution of it there in Matthew 28 is, and surely I am with you always. The Lord Jesus with his people always Uh, even as they have doubts like 
some of the eleven were doubting when he instituted baptism. We saw that last week. And um, if you have, well, even if you haven't, if you, if even if you have heard it, uh, you should probably go and listen to that one again. Um, uh, but Jesus with us always, so that even when we doubt, he is with us to reassure us and bring us back from our doubts. Jesus with us always uh, in the authority that he has, not only on the earth, as we're going to especially be hearing uh, in this passage, uh, but even in heaven to pour out the third person of the Trinity for the man who stood before them is the second person of the Trinity. Even in his human nature, he is still a divine person with, bo- in, with both of his natures. And uh, if you missed the Christology at the men's breakfast, then you're either female or a man who uh, deprived yourself uh, of glorious Christology at the men's breakfast and find someone who is there and have that conversation. Uh, but uh, Jesus with us, with power from heaven to work by his spirit uh, in, uh, in us. Jesus with us for the making of disciples, which happens in two different ways. Uh, one, by his bringing into the church uh, uh, through, uh, through baptism in which we uh, are taught first and then we are brought to faith. And then we believe. Uh, but the other, by those who are brought into the church in a household and then are taught and brought to faith and thus believe. Uh, and the dual way in Matthew 28, making disciples, uh, baptizing them, uh, part of how he makes disciples, teaching them, part of how he makes disciples. A disciple is not finished being made the moment he is justified. He must be conformed to the image of Christ. He must be sanctified. He must have in him produced that holiness without which he cannot see the Lord. And for this great task of justification and sanctification unto glorification, he says, and surely I am with you always. And so we're coming out of verse 8 with this multitude of baptisms in which Uh, the apostle has gotten to preach the the Lord Jesus standing on earth in glorified humanity, but a divine person who has also a divine nature saying, surely I am with you always. But as is always the case, just like your parents don't obey God perfectly, children, and Mr. Rentschler doesn't obey God perfectly, and uh, Pastor Hakim doesn't pay, obey God perfectly. As is always the case, he who preaches the gospel needs the preaching of the gospel. And after all of these preachings of I am with you always, even to the end of the age, verse 9, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And we've been hearing Uh, These three weeks now, two weeks ago, how God reinvigorated his servant, brought him uh, from that sort of waiting mode in which he had kind of returned to his day job. uh, And just, you know, when the Jews were assembled at synagogue, he would go and reason. And the Lord had been blessing it, uh, but then had reinvigorated him when Timothy and Silas arrived. uh, And he was provoked and uh, stirred up in his spirit Uh, constrained, compelled, pressed, and began solemnly testifying that Jesus is the Christ, that God has become a man in order to save for himself a people. Uh, And those who opposed him blasphemed. They didn't believe that Jesus was God. They blasphemed the living God by refusing the great display of himself in Jesus Christ. Uh, And this stirred him up all the more invigorated by, uh, for his ministry. And last week we began hearing how he wasn't just invigorated, but was sustained by being seeing in his own experience the plan of God to save, being applied as the covenant God continued his salvation, his plan of salvation in the, this administration, this final 
glorious administration of the covenant of grace. And now God comes in the person of his son, resurrected, uh, ascended, glorified, and now appearing in another Christophany. We say another because the Bible is full of Christophanies. Uh, you'd hard, be hard-pressed to sell me a theophany uh, in, in the Old Testament that I wouldn't answer you. It's a Christophany, uh, an appearance of God the Son uh, in particular. He comes in another Christophany, and he says, I am still with you, Paul, individually, always. And he continues reassuring his servants' apprehensions. He reassures his apprehensions by way of his steady presence. He reassures uh, by way of the Lord's steady presence. The Lord reassures uh, his servants' apprehensions by the Lord Jesus's sovereign providence. The Lord reassures his servants' apprehensions by the Lord Jesus's saving purpose, steady presence, sovereign providence, saving purpose. Uh, and the Lord reassures his servant by the Lord's statutory, and that just means commanded, a statute, but we have the other S's. So statutory participation by his servants, statutory participation that uh, that what Jesus is doing, Paul has been given a part in, that he is commanded to, and the Lord Jesus is the one who will use it. Um, and then after reassuring those apprehensions, uh, he gives at some point during the 18 months, during the year and 16 months, a further, uh, a further sustaining of his servant by the restraining of his enemies, by the, the display of the promise. No one will attack you to hurt you. And he does get attacked, but they can't hurt him. Uh, and so he's further uh, strengthened and sustained in his ministry by that event in verses 11 through 17. So that's where we hope to go now by God's help. First, the Lord reassuring his servant's um, uh, uh, apprehensions, reassuring him in his apprehensions uh, by his steady presence. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. The apostle who would proclaim to others over and over again that Jesus is with us always, that God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, has come in the person of his son, who as he was departing bodily, continued to say, I surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age, just as he had told them on the night that he was betrayed, that it was to their advantage that he go because he would send another helper and that the Spirit would so minister to them that Jesus' bodily leaving wouldn't leave them as orphans, but now the Father and the Son would come and make their home with the believer by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I often heard growing up uh, about the, in the church about the blessing of Jesus going to prepare a place for me. Uh, but there is a greater glory in his going and his ascending, and that is Jesus pouring out his spirit to make a place in me, in the believer, for the fellowship of the Father and the fellowship of the Son, that we would not be orphans, but that the triune God would bring us into that glory, which is the fellowship of heaven itself in the anticipation, in the part of it that comes by the Spirit blessing the word to us and making us to know God as our Father and to call him our Abba and to know that we are already children of God, even though what we will, will be has not yet appeared, that he has already shown this much love 
that that is what we are. And he make us, makes us to know Jesus as our elder brother, our redeemer, our God, who is determined to save us and came and gave himself uh, up for us. And we don't have time to redo all of the gave himself up from us. Uh, for us from uh, from yesterday's breakfast either, but gave himself uh, gave himself for us and all uh, that that entails, not just the cross, uh, and committed himself, handed himself over completely to us to be ours, that we would say, I am my beloved, so my beloved is mine, and we know him as elder brother to whom we are united by faith, and we know him as God and creator and now redeemer, who is already king of kings and lord of lords, and yet accrues not merit for himself, because he already has all merit in himself, but he accrues merit for us in union with him, that we would be seated with him and in him in the heavenly places. And the the Spirit convinces us that this one who has taken his seat there yet by his spirit comes and is with us and in us and made his home with us and surely does not leave us always, even to the end of the age. But you don't believe that. And I don't believe that. Not the way that we should. And the Apostle Paul didn't believe that the way that he should either. He had the word. He knew what he meant. He clung to these things by faith. He preached them to others at their baptisms as God was sealing it unto them, reminding Paul that it had been sealed unto him. And still he was weak enough in faith. And his Lord who knew him and loved him and is patient with him and persevering with him comes to him not just by word, but by a vision, appears to him visibly, And says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. And we'll come back to that. For I am with you. And the Lord Jesus wasn't just with Paul on that night. The Lord Jesus wasn't just with Paul when he gave Paul visibly a sight of him being with him. No, he meant the entire time you're in the world. The entire time you're pursuing your calling, I am as with you as I am right now before you this night. I am as with you as I visibly am to you now. So as visibly now in the vision, but invisibly always, the Lord Jesus is with us. And does he not also come to us in a vision and a touch and a smell, and a taste at his table, and say, I am with you. I am with you every bit as much as I was with the twelve on the night that I was betrayed by one of them. Am I with you? Am I not with you every bit as much as I was when I broke the bread and poured the cup and gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Because I am going to my Father, but I will not cease to be with you then. And I will not cease to be your life then. And I will not cease to be your strength then. And your goodness then. I am with you. And then he commands, do this in remembrance of me. Because you are blessed. Because seeing me, you have loved me. But there are those who will never have seen me and will yet love me. And how blessed are they. And for their sakes, I command you to continue repeating this meal in remembrance of me. Not just in remembrance of a death that is about to occur on the next day. We show forth the Lord's death in the eating of the bread. We show forth the Lord's death in the drinking of the cup. But we eat and drink in remembrance, not of a death, but a man, a person. We eat in remembrance of him. We drink in remembrance of him. Our faith turns to heaven where the body of our Redeemer sits on the throne of glory with the marks of our redemption. And from there, he says to us at the table, I am with you. 
But he's not just with us at the table. And he's not just with us when we hear his word preached and his spirit comes with power and says to our hearts, these are the words of your redeemer, the words through which he gives you faith, the words through which he grows you in faith, the words through which he gives you that instruction that produces the holiness without which you wouldn't be able to see him, but he's determined that you will see him. And you sit there under preaching sometimes, don't you believers? You know this experience. You've opened your Bible, you've read the text, and the Holy Spirit comes, and you hear the voice of the shepherd, and you know his voice, and you know that he is yours, you know that you are his, and in those moments, you know that he is with you. And then he comes in Acts 18, verse 9 and verse 10, and he reminds you as he reminded Paul, he is every bit as much with you in those moments when you cannot perceive him as he was in those moments when he made himself so perceptible. He is with you for everything that he has determined to do in saving you. He is with you for everything that he has called you to do as his servant in his plan of salvation. He is with you. He is always with us. Sometimes the Lord makes his presence more known to us, especially in the table or the preaching of the word, but he is always present to us. One of my heroes in the ministry heard about uh, John Gerardo in Sabbath school a little bit and um, Robert Murray Machane, who is astounding to be blessed and helped by his, his ministry now a couple hundred years Uh, Later, he died at the age of 29. But he so mourned over his inability to continue in consistent faith to know the goodness and power and sweetness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite sayings of his unto that end, he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And then he says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that what Hebrews says? He always lives to intercede. If you could see the Lord Jesus standing with us now, with the marks of our redemption, saying, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What enemy would we fear? What duty would we shrink from? What weariness would we buckle under if the captain of our salvation was perceptible to us? And yet distance and visibility make no difference. He is with us. The Lord reassured his servant's apprehension, first by his steady presence, second by his sovereign providence, For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. Whether or not someone attacks you, dear Christian, is under the sovereign superintending of God. Uh, Our family recently read a little book um, by uh, Mike Milton, Hit by Friendly Fire. Um, It's on dealing with when people in the church hurt you. Um, uh, And yet the title of the book is a play on words because the theology of the book is the theology of Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And if the rest of the title is uh, is lowercase, you capitalize friendly because it is in the providence of God that every stroke of the attack of the enemy comes just as Job learned. Uh, in the book of Job, which is recorded for, for us to learn that there are two intentions in every act of every creature. There is the intention of the creature, and many of them are evil, and many of them intend evil, and many of them do evil, and God is not evil, and God does not intend evil, and God does not do evil. And yet there is a second and super intention Think about that, all of you. 
all this benighted country have been hearing about the sovereign will of God that rules and overrules all things for good so that he has ordained it all and does good in it all and yet is not the author of evil. We use the word superintend and we give to people, people, the title, superintendent. And yet we live in such darkness that even in the church, When you talk about the sovereign good intention of God, even in the evil acts of evil devils and evil men, that people want to argue against you about the free will of man and how God couldn't possibly uh, have have meant for this to happen. You have Tony Campolo with uh, uh, with his satanic statement after Hurricane Katrina. I still remember it. I was... Uh, pastoring a, a church in Mississippi and, um, uh, and many who had fled New Orleans were uh, coming up near us and we were having interaction with them and he, he gives that supposedly evangelistic sermon in which he says uh, that we are destroying the earth and, uh, and uh, that God has to give up uh, some things in order for us to have free will. And he was the first one to weep when Katrina hit landfall because uh, in order that he would give us free will, he couldn't do anything about it. Uh, this horrible satanic mishmash of environmentalism and Arminianism and uh, autosoterism, self-salvation, and, uh, just disgusting. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of Paul. That is not the God who appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the God of Joseph who meant it for good when men meant it for evil. He's not the God here who can appear as the Lord Jesus to his servant and say, no one will attack you to hurt you. I am sovereign over when they attack. I am sovereign over how they attack. I am sovereign over the effect of their attack. Sometimes they will attack you to hurt you. And I am sovereign over that. And sometimes they will not attack you at all. And I am sovereign over that. And sometimes, as happens in verses 11 to 17, they will attack you, but they won't be able to hurt you because as God does to the devil in the book of Job, he says, thus far you may come and no further. The sovereign superintending of God. You see, our enemies are powerless to stop the saving of the elect. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 11. And the context there is that we are inheriting God himself. by the will of him who works all things according to the counsel of that will. He doesn't just foreordain whatsoever comes to pass. That much is true uh, as we confess in our catechism. But he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass so that those whom he has been determined to adopt as children in Jesus Christ and make them holy and blameless in his presence and to enter into the fellowship of the Godhead, that that determination in himself, that inheritance will be secured for every last one of them and everything he does in all places and all times is unto that end. That's the why. So often something dreadful happens. And well-meaning, under-instructed, under-helpful Christians shrug their shoulders and say, well, we don't know why these things happen. Well, study your Bible. They do happen because the creation is bound to corruption and decay until the revealing of the children of God at the redemption of their bodies in the day of resurrection in which all who have been justified are glorified because they were all foreknown and predestined. And you have there the two wills. While the creation is bound to corruption and decay, God permits the how long of the saints under the altar in the fifth seal in Revelations chapter 6 to be a little bit longer. Because the number of your brethren isn't complete yet. 
And so wicked devils and wicked men continue to do wicked things. And there is vengeance coming and there is justice coming, but not yet. Why? Because the number of the brethren isn't complete yet. And that's true in the macro, in the scope of history, but it's true in Corinth for 18 months. And it's true in your life. For every day of the life of every elect person whom he is bringing to faith and bringing to salvation, it is impossible that the elect will not be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. It is impossible that they would not be saved. Not only are our enemies powerless to stop the saving of the elect, but whatever good works God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, and that includes good works like being a good husband, or wife, parent, child, co-worker, boss, employee, master, slave, etc. But it includes especially the good work, the good work of being one through whom someone hears the gospel and comes to know God savingly in Jesus Christ. Whatever good work God has prepared for you to walk in, your enemies are powerless to stop it. Whatever they intend for evil, he still intends for good. There are two wills, two intentions, and he is the superintendent. He superintends everything that happens. If we are believers, and this is always true in the long term, no one will attack us to our ultimate harm. Even those who love not their lives unto death in Revelation chapter 12, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, even as they die. This is uh, what Romans 8 continues to go on and, and rejoice over. We know that all things work together for good. What sorts of things work together for good? Well, sometimes things like being counted as sheep for the slaughter and being killed all day long. It's amazing how people's warm and fuzzy recollections can drop verse 36 out of the end of Romans 8. But you know that if I die, if today is the day that I am attacked to be harmed temporally, all they can do is kill the body. And because I have feared him who after killing the body could cast the soul into hell, but has instead poured hell out upon Jesus at the cross so that there is no forsaking me, not even and especially not at death. My death becomes not like the death of Christ where I continue in humiliation for three days, but a death in which I am finally, finally made perfect in holiness. And come, yes, into the absence of my body, and God will take care of that later, but into the presence of my bodily resurrected Savior in glory to where my soul departs. And if I have to choose an outfit for my soul, let it be clothed with Christ and leave that body in the closet of the grave. We'll take it on later. We love not our lives even unto death. Because he's the one who is appointed to us the days and the places that we will live. He's the one who is appointed to us the good works that we will walk in. You didn't invent your good works to show off how good you are, to make God feel better about you or make yourself feel better about how you think God feels about you because your doctrine is so insufficient. Any good work that a believer ever walks in, God prepared beforehand for him to walk in it. So that it would be shown that the believer isn't his own workmanship, he's God's workmanship. He's been recreated in Christ Jesus. And the character of Christ that belongs to the new creation, that piece of your glorification that you already have. That's what sanctification is. It's glorification in progress. It's an increasing quantity of Christ-likeness. It's the only thing that you take with you. All the good that you do to others can be undone by the wicked in a snap. Have you not read Ecclesiastes and Proverbs? 
but all the good that God does in you, who he has created new in Christ Jesus, who belong not to this creation, but to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, that good goes with you to heaven. It's real. It's, it's not uh, 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 in quantity or intensity what you want it to be, and you grieve over the smallness and incompleteness. But it is real. And it was given by God for you to walk in. In an antinomian age that hates to talk about the works of believers, so much of the goodness of Jesus in us is lost. Oh yes, let's avoid spiritual pride. Of course let's avoid spiritual pride. But let us not lose glory begun below by trying to be wiser about theology than God. And so we love not our lives even unto death, and we love not our sin even unto death. The days that we have spent in the pleasures of this world and in the service of the flesh, as, as Paul says, they're enough. Wake up, O sleeper. Our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. He says uh, a little bit before that in, uh, in chapter 13 of Romans. He says, wake up. You are immortal until your work is done, which means if you are alive, it is for the Lord Jesus to be with you as he superintends all that he has planned to do. And he's actually given you a part in it. A part in it. And so we love not our praise. It's a Christ-given part. Many good things the Lord has assigned to you that are from him. And you do them with all your might. But what he has given you to do and the effect of it, except for people coming to faith in Christ, that can be lost. Suppose the Lord blesses us and we're together another 35 years. And he blesses your ministry in your home. And he blesses our, our ministry in the assembly. And there are multiple generations of big families of happy Christ-knowing, Christ-loving, Christ-serving believers. And in southern middle Tennessee and northern middle Alabama, there are uh, a dozen daughter and granddaughter churches and we're persecuted and running from the government. Or not. But usually, yeah, when, you, when you ask, be careful for what you wish for. If you pray for the, for the spiritual grace and faith and, and covenantal transmission of the faith of the covenanters, don't be surprised when it comes with the uh, an analogous persecution and martyrdom of the covenant. But suppose we did that. What makes us think that 150 years later, you know, the graves of the pastors won't be parking spaces and the memories of the faith will be long gone as six or seven generations. God remembers his covenant with those forefathers, but the descendants have forgotten and we continue to pray for reformation and revival because God hasn't forgotten. You know, Psalm 78 covers a lot of generations. There's a reason it takes so long to sing. The Lord may take away the effect of your service, but will, what will never be taken away is knowing Christ and what can never be taken away from those in whose life he uses you to produce it is making Christ known. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They will know him still. Billions of years from now and we will know him together. We are to aim at good works. If we're able to do them, he's the one who provided for them. He defines what they are. 
And yet this is the best work. Because his sovereign providence is unto his saving purpose. And we've bled into this a little bit uh, already. Continuing in verse 10. Not only does he tell the apostle, I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. He then goes on to say, I have many people in this city. Paul had already baptized many people. He's not talking about those. Paul knew that he had those people in in this city. What the Lord Jesus is saying is there are people who belong to him by eternal election already who do not yet belong to him by effectual calling or justifying faith. You see, they belong to Christ before they come to faith. That's why they come to faith. No one has ever become Christ's by faith that wasn't already Christ's by his choice, by his dying for them, by his sending his spirit, by his using his servants, by his preparation to bring them to hear the gospel and be resurrected spiritually, that they would be receive the first resurrection so that they wouldn't participate in the second death. Believers are Christ's by electing decree before they are his by effectual call or union through faith. But when Christ comes to him now, after the many have already been converted and says again, I have many people in this city, he's reminding Paul that there are a bunch of baptisms yet to be conducted in Corinth. You see verse 8. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Verse 10. I have many people in this city. Many more need to hear. Many more need to come to faith through hearing. Many more, having come to faith through hearing, will be baptized. I have many in this city, before the marking ceremony, before the naming ceremony. What did you do when Jesus sets someone apart into his church? He adds them to the number of the church and he marks them with his name. Uh, and the, the name property of Jesus Christ is said in the words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's his name. He is the revelation of the triune God to us. But before he puts his name sticker on them, they're already his. There are a bunch of Corinthians running around the city, lost in their sin, dead in their sin, in utter darkness. But they're already Christ's. We don't know how many the Lord has in our place. He hasn't come and told us that he has many. But whoever they are, they're already his, just like the many in Corinth were already his. What is displayed visibly in baptism is true of the elect from all eternity. It's in a visible and formal way in the church. He says they are mine. And we shouldn't confuse the sign with the thing signified. He had put that label They are mine and I am theirs. He had put it on many generations of Jews. But not all Israel were Israel, were they? And not all the baptized, not all with the name sticker. They are mine formally, visibly, covenantally as part of his visible church. Not all of those are his internally, eternally, spiritually. But he knows whom he is saving. He has planned exactly how he's going to bring each of them to faith. If you're a believer, this is true for you. You come to faith because you were Christ's already, which means your belonging to him didn't begin in you, it began in God. If it began in God, how can it be undone in a creature? It began in eternity. If it began in eternity, how can it be undone by an event in time?
belonging, a belonging to him that began in God and outside of time cannot be undone by any creature or any event. It must come to its final completion that you would not just belong to him by election or even just belong to him by justification, but that you would belong to him in perfect holiness and perfect happiness, in full fellowship, resurrected body, sanctified soul, glorified saint, Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren. It is impossible that something that has been determined in God to have that end would fail either to have that end or any of the steps along the way that he has ordained in order to bring that end. If you're a believer, this is true to you, for you. And as you minister to others, you have this confidence, not necessarily that they are elect, but that's up to Christ. You do have this confidence. All who are Christ's shall be regenerated. All who are Christ's shall be brought to faith. All who are the Lord's shall be justified. All who are the Lord's shall be adopted. All who are the Lord's shall be sanctified. All who are the Lord's shall be glorified. So as you minister to others, you know that this is true about the elect. But as you minister to those who are baptized, You have all of these things that the Lord has done in time to encourage you about them. He has not declared to you that he's elect, that they're elect, but he's declared to you that in his sovereign providence, which is superintending all these things unto the salvation of the elect, this particular person has been put in his church. Even as you minister to someone who is in the church and baptized, but is not displaying the fruit of the Spirit, about whom you were afraid that they might be in the Hebrews 6 situation, crucifying Christ again to themselves, bringing themselves to the point where there is not possibility of repentance. Still, God and his providence brought them into the church where his spirit is working, where the life and the power of the age to come are known and seen all around them week by week. You draw encouragement from that. You don't draw your encouragements from the person. That's what we did. We would all be perpetually discouraged and miserable. No wonder there are so many people whose heads are full of reformed doctrine and whose hearts are full of trying to be encouraged by how full their heads are. And you have these perpetually miserable reformed people walking contradictions. No, we take our confidence from God. We take our hope from from God. God brought them into his church. God gave them access to the means of grace. God presented them with their own baptism so that if they believe, their baptism confirms to them the reality of that belief. And if they don't, that baptism confirms to them the reality of the dreadfulness of covenant breaking and that without the covenant keeper, capital K, they will perish as those who did not just fail to know God, First Thessalonians 1, but there is literally a special hell for those who disobey the gospel. Talking to you, covenant children, are visibly marked Jesus' naming ceremony. We are encouraged by what he has done. He put you in your family. He put you in his church. He is making you to hear his gospel preached. We have hope for you. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Respond by turning from your sin and believing in him who has done all of these things. We are encouraged by the saving purposes of God, especially of our own children. You know, you children are holy already in an external, formal, covenantal sense, set apart from from the world by God. 1 Corinthians 7 says you're holy. Ephesians 5, which is addressed to the saints in Ephesus, children, obey your parents. 
in the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, addressed to the saints in Colossae. Children, obey your parents. You are holy. But if you are only holy, visibly and formally, and do not take that encouragement to say, God, who is actually saving in time, all whom he has determined to save from, from all history, he brought me here. He caused me to hear Christ. He gave me the sign of belonging to his church. He gave me access to the means of grace. He said to my parents, I am God to you and to your children. If you don't hear all those things and say, yes, Lord, you are all my hope. Yes, Lord Jesus, your death is all the hope. For my forgiveness, your righteousness is all the hope for my being right with God. Then you will have been given everything and gained nothing. Because you must have him. And look what he's done. He's brought you into a home, into a church, into worship, into preaching even before you come to the table, into having his death shown forth to you by those who are eating the breath, who are eating the bread and drinking the cup. He's done all of these things because he's really saving and you can't be lost if you believe in him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. None who put their trust in him will be put to shame. And you could be certain of all those things because the reason his Sovereign superintendence, his sovereign providence is still keeping this world going and keeping you in it is because he's carrying out saving purposes. And he is faithful. He will save you. Don't look to the unfaithfulness of others and say God's promise has failed. Don't say, but what about all those children who grew up in believing homes and their parents did well, and we who are parents have discovered there's following Christ and dependence upon grace, but there's nobody who can say, I did well, but my child is lost. We say, Lord, save my child according to your faithfulness, despite how poorly I'm following what you've given me to do. Don't look to the unfaithfulness of others and say God's promise has failed. No, you look to the promise of God. You look to the reality of his sovereign providence. You look to the reality of his saving purpose. And you say, since my hope is in God's faithfulness, and since he has taught us in his word that he does these things visibly and formally and temporally as means by which he brings true salvation, then in the same hope that I have in him, I will apply myself to rearing my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I will apply myself to teaching them that they are already members of his church by his providence. I will apply myself to bringing them under the preaching of the gospel and to, to having the Lord's death shown forth to them at the table before they show forth the Lord's death at the table. I will apply myself to those things because the God who has done this visibly and formally and temporally in his church has done so because he is still working invisibly to save and spiritually to save and eternally to save. And I hope in him who is doing this, not in my doing, because it is his saving purpose that is winning the day in all of his sovereign providence. And so he gives Paul to participate, sandwiched in between the first half of verse 9 and all of verse 10, which we have, uh, which we have heard thus far, there are commands. Why are there commands? Isn't God working according to his saving purpose or his sovereign purpose? Isn't he working in his sovereign providence according to his saving purpose? Why does anyone ever have to obey? Well, because... The one who has decided to save has decided how he's going to save. And he's appointed means and he uses those means. And he puts us in positions and he expects us to serve us wherever he puts us. He tells the apostle what not to feel. Do not be afraid. You know, you are not to affirm all of your feelings. 
a lot of your feelings are wrong. Why art my soul? Why, O my soul, art thou cast down? Why does so discouraged be? You wicked, unbelieving, discouraged soul, hope now in God. I will praise him still. He is my help and my God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Be happy in the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget his benefits. Psalm 103 is is commanding yourself not to be Ephraim of Psalm 78. Forget not his mighty works. Praise him and hope in him and hold fast to him and obey him. Some of our feelings are wrong. Do not be afraid. If only we were good at obedience. Thank God we have a Holy Spirit who has promised to help us in obedience. Can you imagine if you, you could just obey that one command? You can even say, say it in um, the don't, don't be anxious and use the old word. Don't fret. Eight letters. Eight characters. And what a revolution of the believer's life could be found in obedience to those two four-letter words. Fret not, that's seven. Don't be afraid. Our feelings are to be brought under the command of Christ. You know, this would be true even if he hadn't reassured us of anything. And yet he who loves us doesn't just give us commands, right? You say the indicative precedes the imperative. It also follows the imperative. The truth of who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing to us sustains us in our obedience. It doesn't just come before and establish uh, our duty to obedience. So he tells them what not to feel. He tells them what to do to speak. And you say, ha I get off of this one. I am not an apostle. I don't have to speak. Oh, except for uh, if you are part of a home, you have to speak. Deuteronomy 6. Not just when you lay down and when you rise up, but talking about them all day long. Everything God says, all that he has commanded to you, you're not just to meditate upon and have in your heart, uh, but you're to meditate upon it and have it in your heart because you're called to be a minister in your family. That, that means you children, not just your daddy. Your daddy has a special job, but you are called to be speaking with your daddy, with your mommy. When you rise up, when you lay down, when you go out, when you come in, you say, oh, well, I'm alone in my house. I'm off the... No, you're not. You're in a congregation of Christ's church. And if you think you're a believer and you're not in a congregation of Christ's church, you're not obeying the Jesus who actually saves so you had better get that one sorted out because you will stand before the Redeemer who commands his people to assemble and, uh, and to avail themselves of the ministry of Christ's church. You, will, you don't get to stand at the judgment before a figment of your imagination that you called Jesus Christ. If you're a member of a church, you're required to speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4. And so that it will be the truth and not what you read in a book that you pulled off the shelf at Lifeway, uh, or those horrible books that uh, the, the, that guy who uses the sauna some other time that I'm not there, and he keeps leaving it in places, and I keep putting it somewhere else in the sauna. And, you know, Max Lucado stuff, and you know, God's promises to America, and, uh, and whatnot. No, you're not supposed to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. So he, he has given you apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers so that you will have steady, true doctrine so that you can speak the truth in love. Because every joint supplies something. Every member has its share. Christ is the one who's building the whole up into his head and he builds the whole up into his head through words, through conversations. Conversations that we're not allowed to waste that we always speak that which is edifying. And not just with believers, but Colossians, the, that we be wise towards outsiders, making sure that our speech is always with grace, seasoned with salt, so that your coworkers don't say, well, that guy sure loves to talk about everything else, but sometimes he talks about Jesus. He says, that guy doesn't shut up about Jesus. What is the matter with him that every conversation 
goes back to how we're sinners, but Jesus is righteous, and yet he took on himself for the penalty of sin so that we could have him forever. Always with grace. Always seasoned with salt. Now, it takes wisdom to know how to answer outsiders, right? That's the preceding verse in the text. doesn't mean make yourself obnoxious with Jesus. It makes yourself, means make your conversation so full of Jesus that if they don't come to love Jesus, they will find that obnoxious. What not to feel, do not be afraid. What to do, speak. What not to do, do not keep silent. Because there are going to be all those times where we think we're practicing wisdom and we're like, the timing's off. Not quite as good an opening in the conversation as I was hoping for. It's amazing how many lions are in the street when you're trying to do evangelism. I'm going to wait till the lion's out of the street. I think I might have heard something scratch. It could have been the toenail of a lion. There's a lion in the street. No, speak and do not keep silent. Lest we join others in their own guiltiness for their own perishing. How much do you have to hate someone not to evangelize? I actually got that question from a very profane comedian. A celebrity of sorts, probably not among you, praise God. But he said, these Christians and these things they say they believe about heaven and hell and Jesus and he's the only way. And I am almost never evangelized by any of them. How much do they have to hate me? That they actually think there's a place and an experience like hell. And they're not doing everything they can to convince me not to go there. How much do you have to hate someone not to evangelize? How much do you have to disregard your brother or sister to have unprofitable conversation after unprofitable conversation in the limited time that you have left, that they have left, and those things together that that we have left together? We talk about everything else except the things of God. Oh, if only he'd given us a day in which we were actually forbidden by God to talk about anything else. Maybe we'd have more training and it would, uh, and it would uh, sanctify the way we speak all the time so that it all, would always aim at edification. Yes, there would be necessary talk about business because we're still in the world. But even when we talk about business, we'd be aiming at edification. So that when, we're, when we come to the Lord's Day and we're not talking about business, we're only talking about worship. We're only talking about the goodness of the Lord. We're only talking about his word. We're only talking about applying it. How naturally we would actually love each other the other six days of the week. We live in a weird age where even Presbyterians don't believe what we confess about the fourth commandment. We all want to talk about our liberty, but what we mean is bondage to remaining fleshliness that I enjoy more than Christ so that I will continue to be less edifying to my brothers the six days of the week than I would have been if I would have submitted to the wisdom and goodness and love of my Redeemer, who uses the one day in its consecrated way to train me so that I'll be so edifying the rest of the week. What not to do, don't keep silent. reassures him also by restraining his enemies. Perhaps we can take verses 11 through 18 with the portion that we had planned for the next Lord's Day. Do you see how the resurrected enthroned Lord Jesus strengthens you and sustains you for the work that he has called you to do for the rest of your earthly life. Whether you're a mom or dad or neighbor or church member or husband or child, brother, sister, employee, employer, everything you do every day, good works that you've been called to, good works for for which the Lord Jesus says, I am with you always. 
He gives us his steady presence. Situations that are superintended by him. Whatever else anyone else intends, he also intends it. And he intends it for the good of the saving purpose of bringing all of his elect, not only to faith, but to fullness and perfection. He takes all of those things and he says, and I have some things for you to do. Some things you're not supposed to feel, don't be afraid. Some things you are supposed to do, you're to speak. Some things to watch out for not doing, don't keep silent. Because it is his pleasure to give us the honor of being used by him in his saving purposes. Let us be reassured by our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for when you come by your spirit and you make us to know the truth of your word. You make us to hear your voice and enter while there's room, even when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. But we bless your name that the reason was the love that spread the feast, the love that intended it, the love that drew us in, and the love in which you are now with us as your servants. We pray that you would, you who have made yourself known to us, would be pleased to use us to make yourself known to others. We thank you that we are immortal until our work is done. Oh, Lord, don't let us waste our lives. But let us walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. And be glorified not only as the creator, but as the new creator. Do this by your spirit, we ask, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.